This is the Anfield Wrap on City Talk 105.9. It's the Anfield Wrap, City Talk 105.9. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, so if something ridiculous happens between now and Tuesday, uh, Friday, and you're wondering why exactly aren't they discussing the fact that Liverpool have just bought Alexis Sanchez for £35 million, then, well, now you know. Opposite me is uh, Libby Stout, uh, Liverpool ladies' goalkeeper. Uh, to the left of her, my left, not hers, is Steve Graves. To the right is Samantha Brocklehurst. In part two, they're going to be talking about Portugal and Russia, respectively. Uh, Libby's going to talk about Liverpool ladies in part one. Also in part two, we've actually got Rory Smith this week. I had a good chat with him before, recorded that earlier as well. And in part three, we've got Aditya Chakraborty to discuss issues around uh, the prevalence of London in an economic and political sense. You didn't see that coming, did you? Uh, the opening question is, what's your favourite individual player performance of the World Cup so far? And we will go to Steve Graves first. Steve? That's really boring as well. Um, <laughs> it's Neymar against um, Cameroon. I just, he's brilliant, and I think the fact that everyone seems to be sort of a, sort of trying to in some way suggest he's not that good um, it just really was a real answer to to those kind of critics. But you're on board, aren't you? You're you're on the Neymar yeah, well, bus. Massively, I mean, I'd, I'd I'd really like there to be a really good footballer. I mean, I, I feel I feel quite <laughs> you're unique in favour of them. I know, yeah, but most people seem not to be. It's odd. He scored like 35 international goals or something like that, and he's he's 22. I don't know. I've made both of those numbers up, but it's something. It's something, <laughs> it's something like that, and it, that which is incredible. It's really, 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 really incredible. I think it's the hair, Steve. I think people have got a face on because of the hair. Oh. Yeah. And also the fact that he's got Junior on the back of his shirt. I've got to be honest, I'm not entirely happy with Junior. Well, I'm sure he can work on that. If you Brazil get you on board. Uh, put the hard hours in. Iron those things out, yeah. Uh, Libby Stouts, what are you going with? To be patriotic, I would go with Tim Howard against Ghana. And, and, and a goalkeeper as well. Right, and he's a goalkeeper, so I have to support my fellow goalkeeper. Um, yeah, I thought he did really well. Um, he's just a great great leader for our team, and I, I think he does well commanding the back and, and just getting what he wants out of his defenders and... Yeah, and he picks up a lot of slack, I think, when we when we kind of slack off in the defense. So, um, yeah, I think he's a great leader for the it's team. The, it's the beard as well. Factor. Yeah, and the beard is fear the beard. So, yeah, he's he's pretty intimidating. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Samantha Brocklehurst. I'm going to start as I mean to go on and give the absolutely ridiculous answer, which is only slightly related to football. But um, I'm going to go with Thomas Mueller, and it's absolutely nothing to do with his... Well, it is to do with his performance on the pitch, but, you know, he scored a hat-trick, yay him. But it's to do with the fact his, um, he managed to absolutely wind Adrian Charles up so much so that he was still going on about it in the second Germany game. It that was is, utterly brilliant. I like the child's meltdown. Uh, that, that, yes, that, is, that indeed did happen. I'm quietly going to go for, um, for Javier Mascherano against Bosnia uh, in that I thought he was great. I thought he controlled the game and he, he didn't give the ball away once that I saw. I thought he was terrific. And also it means that I get to basically say something positive about Javier Mascherano, which sadly you don't get to do often enough these days, certainly in a holding midfield role. Uh, Libby is with us then from Liverpool Ladies and she joined, you joined this summer. I did. Well, actually, I joined, sorry, this January. Well, sorry, this January, in yeah, my winter. head. Bef- be- right. Before the season starts, you, you, you joined. Yes, yes, I did. And is the pressure in joining a successful side? They were league winners last season. Did you feel right. that, that coming in, that, you know, there's a bit of pressure on this? Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily pressure on myself, but definitely there was, uh, you could feel that they had, we had some pressure on us from just trying to come back and repeat what we did in that, in the previous season. But, uh, you know, I think that gives us a lot of confidence as well because we uh you know we we know that we want to defend that title 
and we work every day to, to do the best that we can to do that. So, so, so you, you you felt as though straight away you, you were part of the team setup. It wasn't about the idea of having to meet a certain sort of you, you as an individual, but straight away you felt like you were in there mm-hmm. as, as one of as one of the team, one of the group. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody was great bringing me in, and I um you know I felt very welcome coming into the environment. And I you know I, I want to be on a team that wins championships, and that's where I am. And um and I I want to do everything I can to to do that and to help them get to that again. So. You joined at an interesting time. I mean, obviously, um, women's women's soccer, women's football is much more popular in the US than it is in the UK. Mm-hmm. But you've joined at the moment where it does feel as though there's a genuine sort of concerted effort to bring about greater knowledge, greater popularity of the of the women's sport in the right. United Kingdom. Are you, are you conscious of that, or again, have you just sort of sailed through that process? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know how it was before, as far as in the UK. Um, but everyone seems to say that it is better for the women's game here now, and or at least it's getting better, um, which is great. To see and and I think it's so big in the U.S. I think because of our national team because our national team is so strong um, and that we've won World Cups as well so um, and Olympics so I think there's there's just a great um, kind of fan base for the women there but on the other side you we're, we don't do that well um, with our professional leagues in the states mm. for girls so um, that needs to improve but I think it is getting better. It struck me. I wrote. Uh, I was at the Manchester City uh, home game, the one 0 win, mm-hmm. uh, where you came fifteen yards and cleaned everything out. It was brilliant. It was the, <laughs> yeah. it was the high point of the including game, including my own defender, yeah. including your own defender. Yeah, there was bodies everywhere. Uh, yeah. They were strewn everywhere. But it was mm-hmm. it was terrific goalkeeping. Thank but uh, is that the sort of goalkeeper you want to be? Yeah, that's that's yeah, and that's that's the way I've always been. Um, I don't know how to play any other way, to be honest. Uh, I was taught to come out and can and command your box and come out and get you know do everything you can to get the ball away. So. It's the way I am. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting because the thing I took from the, I was, I was sitting there in amongst uh, the crowd for the whole thing, and mm-hmm. what, what I took from it was, it, it struck me there was like everywhere there was lots and lots of, lots and lots of girls under the age of sixteen there, right. yeah, and they were talking all the way through about what was going on on the pitch, and it struck me as something which you know, you because you get to be male dominated if you get to be male, mm-hmm. uh, you you can be cynical about the idea of sport and role models, but this sort of stuff counts, yeah, because. There's not enough sort of sports and role models for women knocking around right. the place. Certainly, if you get outside of tennis right. and athletics. Yeah. So, whose were yours when you were growing up? Um, mine were uh, American players. They were uh, Mia Hamm was a big one outside of a goalkeeper. Um, but my mine was Brianna Scurry specifically. She was the goalkeeper before Hope Solo, and she she was on the '99ers, the really the big team for us um, with Mia Hamm and like Brandy Chastain, all those big names. But yeah, so I'd say Brianna Scurry. She kind of I was nine years old when I watched them win the World Cup that year in '99. So um, that's kind of the reason that brought me to where I am doing what I am doing now. So I want to talk about the season break. Mm-hmm. Have you ever known anything like this? Does the others in the, in the states? You know, um, in the states, we for uni we do. Have like you haven't played for over a, a month. It's six weeks, isn't it? Six weeks since you last played. Yeah, maybe it is maybe, yeah. I'm not, <laughs> something like that. Probably um, for me, actually, it's not that odd because. I've been out of university now for two years, but I've been in France and Germany, and we've we've had breaks in the center of the of the leagues as well. So it's not too different from what I'm used to. But on Germany, can uh, I just ask what yeah. what's the women's game like in Germany? How's it perceived? Um, they love it. Um, they really do. Um, it's uh, and it, I think it's it's quite big. I mean, they get probably two thousand plus. Uh, at least where I was, and I was in a small. Wow. I was in a small um, town. BV Kloppenberg was it? I was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It was a small small little club, but um, and we had just gotten. Um, promoted to the to the first Bundesliga but we did really well they brought in a lot of really great players but uh in the Bundesliga is I I mean I think it's it's one of the if not the strongest league for women I mean just across the board from every every team in that league maybe besides the 12th they're all very very strong 
in this season then for Liverpool ladies, you mm-hmm. sort of found yourself knock the microphone there, you sort of found yourself I'd say handily placed. You're two points off the pace. Four games yeah, gone yeah. for everyone. Right. Um, but have you, do you feel as though the season got going, or was it because the break was there? I noticed it was, you know, three draws in there. So you've been right. very, very tight at the back, very, very right. competitive. But you, not quite as many goals as mm-hmm. as, as, as was scored last season. Are you working on improving there? Yeah, I mean, we do. Uh, we do finishing all the time. Definitely, that's the area where we want to pick up um, our game. But. Um, yeah, we've we've kept it. The, game, very the game's tight been tight in the whole division, haven't they? Yeah, it just... has. You know, it's. I mean, it's only two points that that separates us from from the top. Um, and there's been a lot of draws, I think, across the whole thing. And I think that for us, the break was welcome because we had so many injuries, and we were really trying to get, you know, every, more people yeah. to get healthy. And now we can, you know, put more people on the bench in order to, you know, get fresh legs. So. Um, I think it was really welcome for us, and uh, and you can just tell, like, because someone was asking me at training. Now we have we actually have a full like where we can play eleven v eleven. Mm. It's the first time we've been able to do that, so you know that's that's been great for us to be able to use our field, which is so big. So we got that sense, didn't we, Steve, at the uh, the Manchester City, uh, sorry, at the Everton game, the cup game that we went to. That there was it looked like there was two or three players carrying injuries, even if we were yeah. in the first eleven. I think that Williams looked like she was carrying something for a mm. while there. It was a bit of a bit of a slightly disjointed Liverpool performance, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, um, it, it did seem to be that once um, once Everton had got like, got a goal on the break, basically they they soaked up a lot of pressure and then and then hit Liverpool on the break and and once they'd done that, there didn't seem to be a a, a huge answer from Liverpool. But I, I think that probably is the kind of thing that often boils down to fitness, as you as you sort of touch on. Yeah, definitely. It, it's um, basically then the next two league games against bottom of the league Arsenal. Uh, but mm-hmm. again, it's worth pointing out that it's a tight league, right? And they're yeah, just in the FA Cup, right? Absolutely, you can't you can't shy away from Arsenal, yeah. And then there's the Merseyside derby, both are at the select stadium. The Merseyside derby is on the 16th of July. The uh, Arsenal games the 29th of June. Uh, so that's this coming this coming Saturday. Have I got my dates right? Sunday. Sunday. Actually. Excellent, yeah. splendid, great, <laughs> great days. The week management there better than mine. Thank I should have written much. that down. It's a 12:15 kickoff. That one. Um, Again, the Manchester City game I went to was played in front of fifteen hundred people. It mm-hmm. would be nice to sort of to feel as though you could regularly break the two thousand mark, as you just mentioned right. in the Bundesliga. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's about getting people in, isn't it? And you want you want these set again the young girls. You want them to feel involved, right? No, absolutely. And it's great to see those young girls come out because we like to and we make sure that we do spend the time after the games and go and, and talk to them and give them autographs and just spend time with their families because you have to do that in our league. That's kind of our personal touch that we can have because because we're women because we were able to go over there and talk to them so um yeah absolutely it's it's a great family environment as well just to come out and and come and come see us play yeah does the team do any sort of outreach at local schools or anything to try and get young girls involved and aware that this is something mm-hmm. they could aspire to um we do uh i don't remember what the names of the schools are but we do we i would say at least once a week one or two of us or three of us are going out to schools to talk to you know young girls playing in the schools and colleges and stuff so yeah we're definitely out in the community and we're helping with the lfc foundation and and everything so we're always trying to get out and so that our faces are seen so that you know people know that we're there and that you know come on out to our games and stuff so I know there's a, there's a lot of work going on. Um, we're, obviously, we're recording this on Tuesday, and, and Lucy Stanleyforth has been at the yeah, uh, today, the, Hammers, yep. the Hammers World Cup uh, game today, the mm-hmm. Women Against Domestic Violence tournament, which which took place. So, you know, there's an awful, there is an awful lot that's that's being done with um, by the ladies, and is that is that kind of coordinated through the ladies separate from from Liverpool FC, or is it, is it something that sort of ties in with the whole the wider clubs? community work or? yeah I think it ties in with the whole club right. um you know I think it I think it all kind of goes together um I think we always try to do everything uh, you know with the club and as organized all together yeah, yeah. 
Um, so this weekend, then it's you can actually if you, if you go and see the uh, Liverpool Arsenal game, you also get in for free to see the Everton game uh, mm-hmm. versus. Uh, well, don't get in free; it's part of the whole thing. Uh, the Everton yeah. game against Chelsea. The two games go back right. to back, both mm-hmm. in the select stadium. Good to play first, better pitch. Yeah, definitely. Kick lumps out <laughs> a bit, make it hard for them, create divots. Uh, we'll do. all over on the, the place on the three G pitch. Three G pitch. Yeah, <laughs> what's it like playing on that? Is that? I do not like it too no. much. Um, I just I like you know I like natural grass, but mm. it's you know it's a great facility. So yeah, can't complain too much. But are both games going out on BT Sports? Yes, I believe so. That's progress. That is progress. It's really positive progress. You know, I don't, I can't say, but I, I from whatever I hear, it is great progress. Yeah. And you know what? It's actually great because my parents can watch it back home. Oh, in America. Very, very yeah, good. They indeed. can stream it. Mm-hmm. Excellent stuff. Okay, so that's this weekend. Then it's 12 15 to see Liverpool. Then following on from that, about 3 p.m., you get to see the Everton game against Chelsea. You get them back to back. So you can do that. And you can get them both for a fiver in there. The, the season ticket for the rest of the season to see Liverpool, ladies, is only £15 worth considering. And children in concessions get in this weekend for £2.50 as well. Uh, we've always enjoyed going, haven't we, Steve? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a day out. It yeah. gets out the house Frankly. and you're watching football. <laughs> uh, try never to be in the house. That's uh, that, that's our working policy and it's worked well so far. Very quickly before you go, you're going to win the league. Yes, sir, we will. Splendid stuff. This is the Anfield Rap City Talk one of five point nine. Huge thanks to Libby. After the break, we've got Rory Smith on the phone from Brazil. The wonders of modern technology. You can stream back to America to watch the football, and you there can you also go. and you can get Rory on the phone from Brazil. Don't go anywhere. The Anfield Rap on City Talk one of five point nine. Welcome back, City Talk one of five point nine. The Anfield Rap. Joining me now on the phone again, a pre-record. I've got Rory Smith. It is Tuesday, so if something happens in the meantime, don't blame me and don't blame Rory. Uh, the opening question, therefore, for Rory is: What's his favourite individual player? performance of this World Cup so far? Uh, I think it probably has to be Guillermo Ochoa keeping the Brazilians out single-handedly uh, in Brazil-Mexico. That's the outstanding individual performance so far, I think. But then Robin a couple of times, Serge mm. Aurier for, um, for the Ivory Coast, James Rodriguez for Colombia. The American um, right-back? Yeah, there's been a few. Oh, Fabian Johnson was fantastic. He was fantastic. That was kind of a, a collective performance for yeah. the States, I think. But in terms of an indiv- like a pure individual one, Ochoa against Brazil, just a great story that he, he's not got a club. He's always been quite highly rated, but he's never quite done it. He kind of went to Europe and went to Ajaccio, who was terrible, got relegated, and now he's kind of this unemployed fella standing <laughs> in the way of Brazil, the world's most powerful football nation. Can't sign on to these circumstances. <laughs> You can't. You can't. It, it, it does on your CV. It, you know, it's a problem. <laughs> it's an outstanding problem. How's it gone then? Have you? I mean, are you enjoying it? Yeah, absolutely. It does feel a little bit like there is a massive party going on that you're allowed to watch, but you're not really allowed to be part of because the time difference and the weight of work and all that. It is. I mean, it, it's a stupid complaint. I'm at a World Cup in Brazil. I'm not in a whinge, but it is a lot of work. But it's the sort of work that you wake up in the morning and you kind of can't wait to do. To be yeah. honest, it is. It's fantastic, and the atmosphere has been brilliant. The football's been extraordinary. Um, it's one of those things where you kind of sit there and occasionally you think, God, I'm, I'm at a World Cup in Brazil. This is this is all right, this. And it's so much, it's, at the extent to which it's, it's, I mean, it, you know, the different supporters, the noise in the stadium's coming across, at least back home. I mean, is it deafening in the stadium? Because at times it seems so loud on the television. Yeah, it is. You know what? It's, it's very odd. And I was thinking this last night, I was at Mexico, Croatia. It must be 25,000, 30,000 Mexicans in the stadium. And it wasn't anywhere near full. It, it must have been, I think 41,000 was the attendance. That stadium must hold 50-ish, I'm not sure exactly, yeah. but it, it looked like there were quite a lot of empty seats. And you never know whether they're pulling the Arsenal trick as well and just saying that these are the tickets we've sold, even if people haven't turned up. And it was really, really loud. It was far louder than 40,000 people should should be. You know, you sort of, you, you know what 40,000 people sounds like, kind of averagely, but that was much, much louder. And I don't know whether there's something about the way the South American stadiums do the acoustics, and that's just a guess. 
but it, it does seem to trap the noise in and it rings around and it reverberates. I mean, but it is this sort of this different supporter stuff, really. I mean, who's really stood out amongst the supporters before we get on to what's on the pitch? Who's really sort of stood out in terms of bringing colour, bringing noise, bringing a lot of a lot of energy into proceedings? The Dutch are good. You've got to like the Dutch. Uh, but then they're helped because they've got such an obvious colour to wear. Yeah. Um, the Americans, I would say the Americans have come in numbers. There's a lot of them here. A good atmosphere. Uh the Mexicans, there's loads, there's loads of Mexicans. And I think all the South American nations have brought tens of thousands of people. It'd be interesting to see, say, if Argentina gets to the semi-final, both of those are down in the south, quite close to Argentina, how many they can bring across the border. Because you, you can imagine in either uh, Sao Paulo or I think the other ones in Brasilia, you can imagine kind of hundreds of thousands of Argentines coming across the border um, just to be in the city for that game, which I'm sure the Brazilians would not be particularly keen on. But yeah, the, all of the South American nations have, have, have got loads with them. Um, it, it's it's reminiscent. Then, it's been so, be the Dutch. It's a bit of a. I mean, I'm, I'm probably talking too much here before we get onto the football. But it strikes me as quite interesting with reference to how much the world's moved on. Mexico '86 was the last Latin or South American World Cup. Uh, before then, you've got to go back to '78. I mean, these are now. You know, the, the people have got in in South America now. There's a number of growing economies there. There's Chile, there's Brazil, Argentina. You know, these these are growing nations, so they're in a position now, aren't they, to to shuttle their people up for people to be able to shuttle about and be able to get to these things and travel just like this. Yeah, again, I, I don't want to kind of rise above my station. It's not something I I would ever claim to be an expert on, but I guess what it maybe shows is that there is a there's kind of a rising middle class in in Colombia, Chile, Argentina, and Brazil that maybe wasn't there 30 years ago that they were always really deeply kind of divided countries between haves and have-nots. Like, you were either desperately poor or you were extraordinarily wealthy. But now, I mean, Chile is a... Is a I saw a quote from someone, I think, a Chilean guy who was travelling in, in Brazil and was staying in a favela in Rio. And he said initially... It's in The Guardian, it's a great piece by Hadley Freeman. And he said initially, oh, you know, we're not, we're not poor or anything, we just want to stay in a favela for the experience, which is fine. And he said, oh, but it, it's not like you get in the first world. And I think... But having been to Chile, that makes perfect sense because favelas are third world and most of Chile is first world. Mm. But I think to a European audience, that might seem a bit strange. A Chilean sort of saying, oh, well, Brazil's the third world. But that's how Chileans and Argentines see themselves. As they see themselves as being fully, de- fully developed, advanced first world countries. And I think they are, absolutely. But maybe they don't have that reputation in Europe of course. yet. And I think what the, what the numbers have shown that they've brought is that there is there is a massive middle class in those countries now. Um, lastly then, you know, it's, it strikes me it's been, a, it's been a, a World Cup of fantastic games. I mean, these group games have been the best I can remember in any international tournament ever. Every single time you look up, there's another great game. Portugal, USA, you mentioned there. Germany, Ghana was another cracker. Algeria, South Korea came from nowhere. They're just the most recent ones, the ones that were in my head. Mexico, Croatia was terrific as well. It's en- an endless number of just, just these fantastic games of football. What do you think brought this about? Is it that Brazil elements or is there something else going on you kind of want to say that oh you know the players all are all inspired by playing in brazil but they, again this sounds a bit sort of spoil sporty the thing about world cups is that you can't actually tell where you are they will know they're in brazil but once you're in the stadium <laughs> once you're in the training ground it all looks exactly the same any of those stadiums apart from maybe the pitches could be in europe oh they you know they, they look exactly like the ones in south africa because they're all decked out in the same way they're all those kind of modern slightly characterless bowls apart from the arena Corinthians. So I, I don't know if that's a factor. I think, to me, it's more that over the last few years, the last 10 years, really, we've seen defending become harder and harder to do legally, which I think has had a massive impact on how the game is played. It's now weighted towards the attackers. But also, I think we're at that interesting kind of cusp point, almost, between kind of teams who want to play possession football and who, who kind of want to control games, either defensively or, or offensively, and teams who want to 
to play a style of game, a style of football that kind of rests on that moment of chaos when when a team loses the ball, and that's that's become much more fashionable in the last kind of four or five years with Klopp and with Bielsa and all, and all these kind of influential managers. The majority of teams play play essentially on the turnover now, and that means that you're getting lightning fast breaks and much more disjointed kind of disjointed is a negative word, but but much more kind of chaotic games because. That's how teams are playing. There's not lot, there's not a, a sort of big period of feeling each other out and kind of trying to establish a way to get into the game. It's it's two teams basically who go hell for leather all of the time because they want that turnover. They want to press the other team out of possession. And I think that 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 has made this a really good tournament. I think also the fact that the the smaller nations are much better than than we often give them credit for. I think is I think that's a pattern that will continue to repeat that we will see that teams like Costa Rica will get better and better because they have access to, to knowledge from football's first world and I think it has led to it it's you don't want to get in, engaged in hyperbole but I can't remember a tournament that's this exciting and the only the only thing that could hold it back is whether it gets much more cautious in the knockout stages which it might I don't think it will but it might because when the stakes get higher everyone gets a lot more nervous that, I, mean, that's, I think that there's going to be at least one or two that go like that I don't think you've, I think you've got to be honest but then that brings its own tension the issue with when people play approach group games like that is that they can you know when you're playing the first or second game in a group game and you start it starts getting that knockout feel well every all the stakes disappear you haven't got that intensity of the stakes there at all so I think it's you know I, I, I think it's going to continue the there's actually the Switzerland epitomised both sides of this for me. The winner against Ecuador when um, when they just keep going after the the, the horrific tackle uh, and then the goal that kills them against France the second where they get completely undone straight from the kickoff. There's not that sort of maturity. There's another thing that strikes me as well before I let you go. I'm looking at the lists of players and all that sort of stuff for fantasy league stuff and all this nonsense. I, I'm asking you the sort of question that could be a three-minute answer, but if you if you want to try and give me it in 60 seconds, do you think centre-halves have got worse? Oh, God. Um... I think every, I think because all defensive players are neutered now. I think you can't defend. I think the, the game. But for instance, I, it doesn't feel to me like there's a that, you know there's a player as good as say Nemanja Vidić in his prime at centre half. You know there isn't a Sammy Hippier, there isn't a John Terry at his best, there isn't a Ricardo Carvalho. Is this just because these players aren't getting the same sort of press, or do you think that that you know is it just the idea that it's become harder and harder, or do you think that ultimately that, that for some reason that might have been a bit of a golden age of centre halves, and now we're, we're in something a bit different? Yeah, I suppose it's logical that you will get you will get sort of peaks and troughs with any player any position where you know where there's a lot of one thing and there's a there's a dearth of another like there's you know there was a, there was a time when it was really hard to name like a world class right back but now there's there's two or three maybe I would put Thiago Silva in the in the same class as as all of those players I think he is absolutely superb but yeah and I think basically it's just become much harder to defend because everything is it, is it the one thing that's really interesting about the referee in here is they're ignoring diving which I think is a much more effective way of doing it than making a big hullabaloo about booking people that if it's not a penalty just let them dive they won't get a penalty yeah. Make, let them know that it's harder to get penalties if you look like you're diving that is a much more sensible approach than pretending it's some sort of great evil um, but no I think basically it's much harder to defend I think it's you're, you're essentially not allowed to tackle anymore because if you if you get get the man at any point, which is largely unavoidable in quite a lot of tackles, it will be a free kick. Anything, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. I thought Rebic is sending off for Croatia last night. I can see why he gave a red, but I think in a lot of games he did, the referee would have just booked him because it didn't look to me like it was malicious. He left his, his foot in, but there was no kind of motion to kick uh, the Mexican player. That's now a red card, and that, I, I just think that this kind of leaves a. This has a massive impact on how the game has to be played because you can't have like a midfield enforcer anymore. You can't have a tough tackling central defender anymore because 
those skills are, are outdated. Football's kind of lost them effectively. And that, that is a massive factor in why we're seeing so many goals because it's, quite, it's really hard to stop them. Rory Smith there, uh, always good to hear from Rory. Back in the studio now with Stephen Samantha to talk about uh, Portugal and uh, Russia as we go through this. Um, the listeners will know the fate in Portugal and Russia by the time this goes out. So there's huge hostages to fortune all over the place here. Uh, Steve, Portugal going out though, aren't they? <laughs> I would have thought so. Um, <laughs> you may be listening to this on Friday and, and thinking that I'm an idiot, but... Um, I, Obviously, looking at the, the, the situation as it stands, um, they, they're in a, in a very, very difficult position, and, and they've got there through through entirely through their own fault, or entirely through the fault of their manager. Because ultimately, a World Cup team's fate is is in the hands of their manager, particularly when they've got good players. And they have got good players. Yeah, yeah, they've got a few. It's it's really one interesting. In well, it's, it, they've got one really good one, but he, I mean, he, he looks hard. He looks in terrible yeah. shape, to be yeah. honest. He does look in terrible shape. But it's more the idea that they didn't feel as though they could maybe pop, pop him on the bench for a game or two because they've, they've managed to create this entire culture where they're such a one man team. Well, they, they wouldn't. They they wouldn't do, for example, what Uruguay did against Costa Rica, which admittedly Uruguay lose that game, but then they they, they get a Suarez who's somewhere close. Or somewhere at least halfway to to what he's got, which is which is more than enough for a Roy Hodgson team. Ronaldo just he doesn't look anywhere near at his level of fitness, and and also he he just looks around at the players around him. And I, and to be honest, I I sort of sympathise with him, and I think I'm I'm basically seem to be waving the banner for for superstar players in this in this um in, in this show today, but. You look at the players around him; they're he not. He hates his teammates. Well, yeah, he hates them, and I don't think he hates them because they're not as good or whatever. He just hates them because they've. He's picked the wrong players, Paulo Bento. He, he just he just seems to have stuck with with lads that he knows, and he and he sort of is used to. He's stuck with loyalty, and I think that that generally is is a bad approach. Okay, then um, Samantha, you're our Russian correspondent as well. Um, God help you all. Uh, how has the Russian press taken this World Cup so far? Um. It's quite interesting because they 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 can do no wrong. They is that what, a, is that the way it goes out? Is it that they pretty could... much they can do wrong no wrong. Fabio Capello can certainly do no wrong, and it's interesting that yeah. Steve said you know that a World Cup team is driven by its manager. Their fate mm. rests with the manager. I mean, Fabio Capello just before they you know flew across to Brazil was handed a a contract extension through to twenty eighteen to cover them through the through the World Cup. Um, he's getting a bit of a pacing in if we look at the European press, particularly since the news is broken today. I think it was about how much he's being paid. He's the highest paid World Cup manager, followed by um, Mr. Roy Hodgson, who's on about half of what he's on. The European poor press... Roy. Yeah, poor Roy. He needs to have a word there to see Roy. He needs, he needs more money for more books. He's definitely getting a new contract after the, the tournament. You know, that. you know that, don't you? Of course he is. Yeah. Of course he is. But- so Capello's getting this pacing about in the European press about how much he's getting paid, but the Russian press, absolutely nothing. The Russian sports ministers come out and said after the Belgium defeat, you know, he could not have done any more. The team could not have done any more. They were unlucky with some, with the referee decision. He seems to be a bit untouchable. That's, it's fascinating this, because I'd have thought that he would be, you know, more and more under pressure. Are they already, is there a comparison, is there, is there talk already of, of 2018 and outside of Hodgson even? Are they trying to talk Brazil 2014 down and say what they'll do better in, in 2018? Yeah, what they're using, and um, they're using this, this particular World Cup as a means of saying, well, we've been out of it for 12 years. This is a bit of a practice run for us. So let's just see it as a means of getting on top of things before the 2018 World Cup. I think the odd thing is that, you saw the impact Zhigoyev had in the first game when he came on. That Capello then doesn't doesn't turn to him in the second game. He did, he did make some changes, but Zhigoyev wasn't one of them. Zhigoyev and Kerzakov. I thought Kerzakov no. was excellent in the first game and got he, the goal. He, he seems he seems to want to try and just 
scrap through in the same way as I suppose his England team did. But at least they did get out of a group, so that's okay. That's okay. That's one thing. Yeah, they got out. They got yeah. out of the group. Yeah. Uh, others have failed to do so. That was yeah. the one slight criticism he does get in the Russian press is that he made the substitution decisions too late in the Belgium game. But apart from that, everything's sunny. I mean, Capello in general, he, he feels like someone that the game has just just gone past a bit. Um, and that's he says it's through no fault of his own. I don't really mean that because it is because you you sort of have to keep up with things if you're a football manager. And if you're you know, going to keep getting he has, paid he has, amount of money, well, yeah, and but he has won stuff. And the this this team there isn't there isn't a load of invention and creativity and youthfulness in Russian football. No. Um, which I guess you know they obviously need St George's Park, don't they? <laughs> they need to sort out. They need a facility. They need uh, a facility in, in, in the Russian equivalent of Burton upon Trent. <laughs> uh, They're building nine new ones for the World Cup. Are they? Yeah, oh, twenty eighteen. Yeah. yeah, nine new stadiums. Nine yeah. new stadiums. Mm. My word. Okay, so this is the Anfield Rap City Talk one hundred five point nine. After the break, we've got Aditya Chakrabarty on to talk about effectively is London too big and holding the UK back because you know it's the summer and that. The Anfield Rap on City Talk one hundred five point nine. Welcome back, the Anfield. Field Rap City Talk 105.9 as we move you through to 6pm on Friday for you. I'll remind you again it is Tuesday for us, we are recording this so if you're wondering why we're talking to Aditya Chakrabotti when Liverpool have gone and bought Lionel Messi you now know why. Uh, we're moving ourselves along and the reason why we're talking to Aditya is because he's here in Liverpool on the 17th of July to take part in an event uh, which is called Capital Punishment. Is London too big and holding the UK back? It's a 6pm start. Uh, Professor Henry Overman will be with him as well. Professor Michael Parkinson presumably not that one. And Roger <laughs> Phillips, presumably that one. Uh, it is a free event. Uh, Aditya, I mean, you're talking first and foremost about the dominance of the capital. It's stopped being party political, this sort of thing, hasn't it, in, in the first case? Because it's in, it's it, it, the dominance of London over the last 30 years has increased no matter which party's been in government. Short history would go something like this. We have a massive crash, which is caused by the city in London. Every politician going says we must never have this again and part of the way we avoid having this again is by shrinking London, by having London less important to the UK than it has been historically, by having fewer banks and more factories. And what happens after six years, seven years from the crash? Actually, London is pretty much the only part of the country which it really is booming now. Um, you see it in everything. London's the only part of the country which is actually creating full-time private sector jobs. The rest of the country isn't. London and South East uh, is pretty much the only part of the country in which house prices have gone above where they were when the credit crunch began in 2007. Significantly so as well. Yeah, 20%. So uh, you may have been seeing in your paper on the telly stuff about a house price bubble. Nonsense. There's a house price bubble in London. The rest of the country continues to flatline. So it's weird. We've come out of this entire crash, which was caused by the city... And the only part of Britain which is still standing is the city. And, and the, the, the only startup of, of, of which is still growing, essentially, first and foremost. And that's, uh, but this dominance, I think, you know, it's it, it's increased as well. Over the, uh, you know, it's a cultural thing as well, which then it leads to greater economic dominance. It's the way in which the fact that you know the the whole country's media revolves itself around London. It, th- th- then it's a greater economic dominance, and it's just this cycle which is which which has set itself up. Aditya, I think that's I think that's right, Neil. I think the way it manifests itself is that people don't even see it anymore, the dominance of London. There was a re- very revealing tableau I'm, I'm remembering from just a few months ago when David Cameron launched um, his bid to get the Scots to vote to stay within the union. And where did he launch this, his part of the Better Together campaign? He went to the Olympic Village in East London and <laughs> delivered a plea to the Scots 
that this was part of what made Britain great. What was the Olympic Village? It was taxpayers' billions from around the country. I think the Olympics cost something like 10 billion quid. Yeah. Taxpayers' billions poured into a corner of East London, which was used by um, giant engineering firms to build houses and other infrastructure, which is now being flogged by estate agents in East London. And yet no one in Conservative Central Office or the government seems to notice that this is a particularly London-centric message to send out. We seem to kind of just almost accept now that really London is, you know, as some people sometimes put it, Britain is, uh, uh, has a first world capital and a second world rest of the country. I find that really worrying. Well, it is really worrying. I mean, the thing that that concerns me hugely is the way in which London, and it hasn't happened to Liverpool yet, um, and and hopefully it won't, but the way in which London seems to eat up what's around it. You know, I, for instance, I think Norwich is a beautiful, wonderful city, and yet it's become this sort of, it's two hours on the train from Norwich to London, and yet it's become very much a, yeah, it's a satellite satellite state of London. It revolves around London. Because it's two hours away, it becomes a commuter town. And this is what really concerns me, you know, to talk about the reality of something like HS2, you know, where, where you're effectively create, making that space bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's just damaging politically, it's damaging economically, because you, you're improving an infrastructure without there being anything there. I think that's right. What we're doing, effectively, with things like HS2 is we're spending billions on creating this train line, which is meant to somehow lead to the rest of the country, up to Birmingham, Manchester, growing somehow. And yet we're not really thinking about what kind of economy those places have. So effectively we're turning a place like Birmingham essentially into a suburb of London. If you go to Manchester and you look at the private sector work that's there at the moment, Manchester on the surface appears to be extremely prosperous. But if you look at the private sector work, an awful lot of it is simply doing back office work for people in London. And that, I mean, this is well. This is this is the sort of the concern, isn't it, Steve? I mean, the, the, and this is the concern with HS two. But it's the concern generally. It's it's damaging politically to the country. The makeup of the country gets itself somewhat you know, disfigured by this sort of stuff. It's I've I often sound like I have a beamy bonnet about London. And one of the issues around this, Steve, is for me, real London, the real people in London, they're also being damaged by this. It's not their fault. They're they're also you know finding this difficult as well. Yeah, I mean, there, there probably is nowhere tougher in in the country um to be someone who who only earns what well what people would call a living wage if that or the minimum wage you know to to try and to try and manage in london if you are not incredibly wealthy is becoming seems to be becoming increasingly difficult which i think only accentuates this push towards dormitory towns towards people going oh well if it's 90 minutes from london we'll we'll live there and and, and we'll somehow kind of brand out. it as london and i think you know you see a lot of the media kind of promoting that idea as well of um, there was a feature in the Guardian a couple of weeks ago about um, people who'd sold up their London, um, their London <laughs> property in order to go and um, to go and buy live live pile. in the countryside. Yeah. yeah, to go and buy a massive pile and and how wonderful they were and how, how much they enjoyed their their new life um, in the in the countryside. It, yeah, but still within reach of London. You know, it's that it's that kind of yeah, location, location, location. And we we'll have a we'll have a, a city pad somewhere and then we'll have a a bigger house somewhere just outside. It's 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 really damaging. I think it is amazing how readily accepted that is by certain regions if you take um the the train from liverpool into london you're arriving to euston the last time i went through euston there were posters for northamptonshire which is advertising itself as north londonshire (laughs) in an attempt to get commuters who can no longer afford to stay within london to move out to northampton and i was talking to um uh young chap this this morning who would be earning i don't know around the kind of the London average wage, which just to, just to put some numbers on this, 
the average wage in, in Britain is about 22,000, 24,000. The average wage in London is about 34. The average home in London is 12 times, 10 to 12 times the average London wage. There is no way that chap I was talking to this morning, who's 30, who's got a good job, is ever going to be able to afford to buy a place in London. It's, impossible. It, the, what, what kills me about this, Aditya, is that it's 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 the contradiction in terms of the fact that there's you know the there's been a over the last thirty years, if not the last fifty, sixty years, what we can call centre right in this country has been pushing for the idea of a nation of homeowners. There's been those sorts of conversations, but simultaneously, the same policies have made it effectively economically impossible. Well, a nation of homeowners, but not a nation of people who are employed. But therein lies con- contradiction. Uh, just to come back though, Neil, to your point about real London. I mean, I guess I would qualify for that label of being a real London. I was born and brought up in a, in a part of London, uh, on the outskirts in North London, uh, which is where the light bulb was first mass produced, where the television, the colour televisions were first mass produced, dishwashers, gas ovens. It was kind of the, one of the great hubs of Britain's light industrial revolution. And Around the mid-80s, the area, it's called Enfield. All the jobs were going, all the factories had been shut down. I still remember that it was possible for me when I came back from university in summer still to get a summer job for holiday money in one of the local factories, shoving doors for a glazing unit. But the point is now that if I wanted to get a similar kind of job around where I am, there are no light industrial jobs. There are no industrial jobs. So the nearest I could get would be sliding donuts through um, the local donut glazing fast food unit because that's what's replaced those jobs. Now, that means that areas like the, the one I grew up in, but whole batches of them all around the, um, the M25 in London, whole batches of them do nothing apart from act as pens for people who can't afford to live elsewhere in London. Now, that can be either your migrant worker who's keen to get on, or it can be the person who's been chronically unemployed. There are parts of the area in which I grew up in in which there are more people on out-of-work benefits than there are in Liverpool. Yeah. I mean, I think, this I think is London. This is not the London of the media, the, the banks, the restaurants that people think about. It mm. is part of London. And yet the prosperity that people talk about as being part of London hasn't trickled out there. We've all heard the phrase trickle-down geography, trickle-down economics, rather. This phrase trickle-down economics is very popular in the 80s. We're now in this age of trickle-down geography in which the wealth that's created in the centre of London is meant to trickle out to the rest of the country. It hasn't even reached the outskirts of London, let alone the rest of the country. Well, because I think if, if, you, if you work in London but you, you live in a dormitory town, you just kind of take your money back into London and, and it, it doesn't... I don't think it necessarily... Yeah, you don't look towards Birmingham if you, live in, if you live somewhere halfway between, if you live in Northampton, for example. I think, you know, as well, this is all bad for London. That You get this situation where you sort of live in London until you're about 30 and try and scrape by somehow to pay your rent. And then ultimately you think, well, if I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to have to move out of London. And ultimately, over generations, that can't be a good thing for, for London's social makeup. Uh, the, you know, the, other, the other thing which this, this undermines, Samantha, it's, it, 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 it unbalances the UK sort of politically as well. I mean, it's, this is a bigger issue for the Labour Party, I'd say. It's, it's, it means that effectively Miliband's got to be leader of a Labour Party that can both appeal in the north of England, in, in Wales, in Scotland still, hopefully, uh, from just simply from a cynical political point of view, and s- simultaneously be able to, to make sense in a commute about that sort of obsessed and, and so london yeah, it does. It, it it perpetuates the the idea that 
people aren't connected to politics. It's if somebody's looking around their local area, which, you know, has no money pumped into it, hasn't for years and years. And then they're looking at London where, you know, all the banks are, all the wealth is, all the opportunities are. Also, it's perceived. Um, it's really, really, it becomes really, really easy for them just to say, well, that's nothing to do with me. I'm completely disconnected. That is a party for those people. Their reality is not my reality and therefore I'm not going to engage in the process whatsoever. And it's a really, really, really tricky sort of bridge to cross. How do you bring two completely disparate realities together politically? I think um, Samantha's point about the politics is bang on. You're already starting to see the unwinding of the politics of this with the SNP and the Scottish, the, the, the push for Scottish independence. Whatever happens in September, whatever way the Scots vote in referendum, I think effectively that is the beginning of the end for a kind of politics which says London first because London is the only really big world-class city we've got. Because more and more parts of the country can be saying, well, what, is, what has Westminster done for me lately? Um, and, and I want to just, just to make it re- underline here how much of this is, is deliberate choice because the thing that the Londonistas will say, um, I'm debating a, a chap called Henry Overman, who's from the LSE, he's a professor, he's a prime Londonister. He argues that what the country needs is more London, not less, and that London is a world-class city, just embrace it, get over it already. He's extremely influential when it comes to um, Downing Street and the coalition. Uh, let me just put a question to, to all of you. Um, a think tank called the IPPR North totted up all the spending on transport that would happen between 2010 and 2015, so over the course of this parliament, and they broke it down by the regions. Now, they found that transport spending in London alone amounted to £2,731 per head. How much do you think it amounted to in the North West for those five years? Okay, uh, £250. 500 750. Steve's being <laughs> tactical. Yeah. Go on, <laughs> go on you're, all, you're all way off. £134 per head. Wow. wow. Now, that's bad. Mm. But thank your lucky stars that you're not in the northeast, where it's only £5 per head. Aditya, thank you so much indeed for coming on and talking Thanks about that. It's the 17th of July, the event. Capital punishment is London too big and holding the UK back. It's a 6pm start. I didn't tell you where it was a minute ago. It's at the Maritime Museum. Tickets are free and they're still available online. So thanks to Aditya, thanks to Libby, thanks to Steve and thanks to Samantha. This is the Anfield Wrap this week. And as I say, you didn't see that coming. This is the Anfield Wrap on City Talk 105.9.